Welcome back to EW's Game of Thrones weekly podcast. This is bonus episode three of four, talking about my book, Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, the untold story of making Game of Thrones. I'm James Hibbard, and as always, I'm here with my podcast partner, Darren Franich, who between the last time we spoke uh, has finished the book, and I think we're going to be jumping a bit ahead here, but uh, uh, how has the uh, book reading been going? James, uh, everything that I said about how much I was enjoying the first half of the book magnified in the second half of the book for a lot of reasons that we'll be getting into here. Um, On this episode, specifically, we'll be discussing a couple of what seem like to me the bigger controversies of Game of Thrones um, in terms of narrative controversy, roads that maybe shouldn't have been taken, um, things that got people talking and that people are still talking about when they discuss what should and should not be shown on television. Heavy stuff like that, that uh, in Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, I think you approach um, with a lot of fascinating insight from the people involved in making it. Um, but uh, I do want to kind of start us off, James. We're now going to be in the phase of this bonus limited series edition where much like in the middle of Game of Thrones, we're just hopping all over the map. Like, like if this, if we could do our opening credit sequence now, there'd be like like seven places that would be emerging from the Risk game board of Westeros. Um, but uh, I do want to zero in a little bit on a piece of the show that I think uh, in your writing, you really kind of bring back to life. There was a point in the series where you had these great dynamic duos of characters uh, kind of scattered all, all across Westeros. Um, and the couple that I think for a lot of people stood out so much almost immediately and became really defining was uh, Brienne of Tarth and Jamie Lannister, two characters who, when we met them in the earlier seasons, had been you know diametrically opposed in every possible way. All my life I've been hearing Jamie Lannister. What a brilliant swordsman. He was slower than I expected. And more predictable. I've been sitting in a muddy pen, wrapped in chains for the past year. And I'm a woman. I was still beating you. You were not beating me. Maybe you were as good as people said. Once. Or maybe people just love to overpraise a famous name. Having talked about them with you and enjoyed the characters so much, uh, I thought it was just great the kind of insight that we got from the performers. Can you kind of talk a little, a little bit about, because um, Gwendolyn Christie and Nikolai Coaster-Waldau, both very interesting people playing very interesting characters. What was it kind of like covering them and kind of, re-go- uh, and kind of going back to that uh, dynamic uh, as you were writing the book? Yeah, you know, one thing people always want to know is they want to know if, if, actors are like their characters and usually the answer is is very much much no and nikolai and gwen you know in in most respects are not like their characters but there is an aspect of their relationship with each other which is very much like their characters which is this sort of this sort of very very sort of cutting you know oftentimes insulting yet also with this underlying respect banter that they have in real life that very much echoes some of the dynamic between uh, Jamie Lannister and Bran of Tarth. So, you know, I, I was pretty happy to be able to do a chapter, you know, basically just on their relationship and, and kicking off with, with uh, when they first met, because when they first met, it was, I mean, it, uh, it wasn't very meat cute at all. It was, it was, it was this very sort of tense, uh, meeting that 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 they first had, and uh, and then their first day on set was, was also very tense. And uh, and uh, you know, Gwendolyn uh, talks you know pr- pretty candidly and and rather hilariously, you know, about uh, their their first day together. And uh, we actually have a clip of that uh, here. And then the next day we were shooting, and the first thing he said to me was, "Do you know your lines?" And I said, "Good morning." And he said, do you know your lines? And I snapped back, yes, I know my lines. Do you know your lines? (laughs) And we got into the van to go down to set and we started bickering. But it was really making both of us laugh, but neither of us would kind of allow it. And we were also annoying each other. Genuinely, it vacillated between genuinely adoring each other and feeling quite savage and and being very entertained and i said to him so are you method he said no i am not method are you method 
because if you are, it's going to be exhausting. <laughs> and I said, I, I said, I do what I like. So he was really winding me up. And he said, this is going to be good. And, but there was something about him that I knew it wasn't serious. And it, it, <laughs> that set the tone. And it just kind of goes on like like that for for a little while in terms of them going back and forth and kind of you know figuring out how each of them work together and you know it has to be so so odd you know when you're when you're an actor and you're cast on a show and you know that you're going to be spending years working with one particular other person and you're going to be in all these kind of extreme situations with each other and these long days and long nights and in in difficult environmental conditions on thrones and it's like you know holy hell am i am i going to get along with this person is this person going to be a total nightmare is 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 this person going to be really great to work with so there's a lot of anxiety that goes into you know when you meet people like that for 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 the first time and and uh and uh, they have such a, a, a wonderful d- dynamic off the screen that that's really fun. Well, and you know, James, um, one way that I was reading your book, uh, and I'm not sure that I, that I would recommend this, but it was kind of on my mind, was this question of like, how come other shows haven't done this yet? Or at least from, from my perception, there hasn't really been a show that in some ways has followed in the tracks of what Thrones was doing well. And, uh, you know, one thing I love about that up-close focus you give that dynamic is it's really a, a reminder of, you know, these X factors that came into play when you had two performers who had this really specific and really wonderful chemistry, something that, you know, could not be faked on screen while mixing that together with, you know, some of the richest narrative from the books themselves. Um, You know, whether it's kind of Jamie's revelation, which comes, you know, towards the middle point of the biggest third book after that character had been totally absent practically for a lot of the, 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 the books previously. Um, you know, when you get to that moment in the show, you see how much Nikolai Kosterwalda was always kind of playing that character. Those sort of deeper, darker shadows were always kind of at the forefront. But uh, it also kind of made me realize, James, uh, I've kind of discussed with you before. For me, the Thrones truth is the middle seasons. You know, season three, seasons four, stretch a little bit through to the end of season six. That, for me, is the real kind of golden age of when I think about Thrones. Um, And I, I realize now that at that point, this seems obvious to say, but you did really have almost the show was a compilation of different bands in a way. And, you know, you, you had these sort of great double acts. You had these sort of groups of people who were interacting a lot with each other, but not necessarily seeing the other corners of the map um, and how that kind of was really good at the time. Uh, I'm dancing around the fact that the next thing that I really want to discuss, James, is when they tried to add in a whole new band of people in season five. Oh, yeah. uh, going to Dorne. What happened in Dorne? Never going back to Dorne. This is something that Game of Thrones uh, fans, even people who profess to love a lot of aspects of the show, that that would become controversial. I think it's fair to say that Dorne is something that a lot of people tend to either dismiss outright or look at as being an example of the show maybe finding its limits as far as adaptation. Um, and I have to say, James, I really feel like your coverage of the Dorn subplot in season five is kind of the most certainly that I, as someone who I, again, someone who I tend to think I know a lot about the making of the show, it felt really kind of um, a lot of interesting revelations about what they were going for and what maybe wasn't working. Um, can you kind of talk about returning to the Dorn issue all these years later? Because that, that in my memory, was really an example of something that the show really actively tried to backpedal from in a way that it, it couldn't always do, just given the way the narrative was, was moving. Yeah, the Dorn issue is 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 really complex and is one that was always really sensitive. Is always one that, when doing interviews with people on the show, that, that they're kind of reluctant to talk too much about. Um, and yeah, and it's part, partly sensitive because you know there's this intersection there between uh, you know what George is doing in the books and what the showrunners are doing the show, and. Um, you know, and and the show getting beyond the books, because, of course, the books added, you know, started with the books adding, you know, so many characters and and new storylines in A Feast for Crows and and A Dance of Dragons. And 
you know, and, you know, George basically expected the show to spend as much time on, you know, adapting those books, you know, you know, in terms of pages versus hours as they had spent uh, adapting the first three books. And instead, you know, the show went pretty quickly through through those books because they didn't use a lot of those storylines because they got to a point in, in, you know, in season five where they had, uh, you know, there's at one point in season five where they, they literally have eight different storylines in eight different locations, plus had benched the hound and plus had benched Bran Stark. And for a TV show, I mean, that's just almost, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's really un, un, unheard of. I mean, you would have major characters that only have like a few minutes of screen time per episode yet they 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 wanted to still represent on it and try to find a way to to get it in at least somewhat and so they went for for the doran storyline and you know the result of that didn't just impact the doran storyline i think the result of that really also impacted the entire rest of the show when people ask you know why wasn't the show 10 seasons uh and you know, also say, boy, I didn't like the Dorn, Dorn storyline. It's well, 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 there's your answer. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. they, there, there is this, there's a sense of, you know, and I think, you know, Brian Cogman as, you know, the, uh, the co-executive producer, um, really, you know, as usual, you know, you know, said it best. He, he, he was, he was, he was just like, you know, this is a lesson in terms of how much you can expand a TV show. It's funny because, you know, I mean, Cards on the table, I thought the Dorn stuff was awful almost uniformly throughout. And uh, as someone who really does like the Dorn stuff, and in a more cosmic way, I like a lot of the expansion pack nature of books four and five. Uh, I've talked a lot about loving the Greyjoys, loving the Martells. Um, You know, this really got me thinking about, you know, what would have been the way for it to work? And on one hand, you know, you kind of mentioned the idea of, is it just more time? Is it just literally saying, okay, we adapted book three into two seasons. We're now going to essentially do that for books four and five, which cover the same ground. So that would then be, I guess, four seasons, basically. That gets us to eight seasons while we don't know how long the ultimate story would be, but that would not be very close to the end of the tale. And I just think that, you know, with Dorn it got me really thinking about what is a good show that has successfully introduced not just a new character, not just an entirely new set of characters, but also that entirely new set of characters in a setting that was only ever barely really glimpsed or you know seen vis-a-vis the two characters we saw from Dorne in earlier seasons. All I could really come up with, maybe someone, maybe someone else out there was smarter and can think of this, I could only really come up with something like The Wire season four, where you have the addition of the schools and, and of the kind of children characters, arguably Friday Night Lights and the, their edition of the sort of other side of town. But they did that while chopping off half the cast while Thrones was just kind of adding people. Um, th- this is all to say, I, it, this sort of refascinated me, your coverage of Dorne, really got me thinking about it and why it didn't work. Um, that said, I just think you mentioned uh, some really interesting insight from the producers. I believe it's one of the directors, um, Mark Mylod, who at one point just kind of says, one issue with the characters like the Sand Snakes is there's maybe not much more to them than the fact that they're badass. And I, I, I think that on the page, there's a lot more to them. There's also a lot more of them. And it's, it's not like we see them all dramatized all the time. But it is just that kind of problem of when you're already servicing so many other characters, unless you were going to do something totally transformative and just say... I don't even know. I, I guess it's like it's like Spartacus season two, where it's like we're going to go cover something totally different now and come back to this later. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's hard to really imagine what that would have looked like. Um, did you kind of have any other kind of uh, again as someone who who, who, who kind of covered it at, at the time? I guess did you feel like you got to the bottom of Dorne in, in your coverage of it for Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon? You know, with everything Thrones, I feel like there's always more bottom beneath the bottom, and you know maybe. Five years from now, someone will come out with with another book with a whole bunch of new uh, revelations that take it further. But 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 I feel like I I, I had a clear idea, and uh, and I think the reader comes away with a pr- pretty clear idea of it. I I also like like uh, what what um, you know the point that Jessica Henwick, who played Nymeria Sand, 
pointed out. And that, that is, is, you know, it's just, it's really hard to introduce a character with only, you know, a line or two. And, you know, you think about how when they brought on, um, you know, uh, Prince Oberyn Martell, and he, he's got that great monologue at in, in, in the brothel, you know, where you really focus on that character for a few minutes to, to give them a, a real chance to, to kind of, kind of be their own person it to try and do that with three characters all at the same time. It's like you understand why they have to do it that way because there's so much else going on in the episode. Yeah. Um, and, and so you kind of have to do it that way, just, just, just pragmatically. But at the same time, it's really hard, you know, for each character to, to, to pop in those. Totally. And, 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 you know, her kind of insight, it really gets me thinking about how, you know, the early years of Game of Thrones, my experience as a viewer was kind of this feeling of, you know, the TV drama seems like something that can do almost anything now. You know, we were coming off of great years for drama. Thrones was kind of expanding in terms of what you could do with things like battles, with things like sheer geographic scope across two continents, things that, you know, I'd certainly never really experienced before in a TV drama. Um, It's funny to think of Dorne as just something where you're really hitting up against these boundaries that are in place unless you're willing to do something completely different with a season of television. You know, the, the, the equivalent of something like Feast for Crows would have been, okay, we're not just benching Bran, who maybe hasn't done that much lately anyways. We're also benching Tyrion Lannister, who's literally our, like, main, you know, the, the main person on the poster for a couple of years now. Um, I don't know. I, I, just, I find that kind of really, um, really interesting. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. We're back with EW's Game of Thrones Weekly. In a similar way, James, um, you have in-depth coverage of something that is vastly more disturbing to talk about, uh, but that became a really big talking point uh, in people's approach to Game of Thrones as it got into its later years. Um, Season five famously one of the most depressing seasons of television ever made. Uh, I, I, I was trying to like do the math on when exactly it aired, but I think that season five was right around the time when there was like no shortage of depressing television and like Walking Dead was killing, you know, two characters a week as usual. Um, but even so, season five did hit some pretty momentously bleak landmarks. Uh, and the one that everyone always talks about, of course, is the horror of Sansa Stark's wedding night, um, what happens to her, what Ramsey Bolton does, uh, and specifically the larger controversy around it became how the show kind of chose to dramatize it. Um, and the sense that the show itself was either mistreating the character or was mistreating, what was mishandling its depiction of, of sexual assault. Um, all incredibly heavy topics that I don't think, you know, you know, Certainly, we cannot answer those questions the way you can answer plot questions, but I really admire, James, your approach to this and the way you get a lot of different people to discuss not just the event itself, but some larger aspects of Game of Thrones and its perspective on um, female characters. Um, Thousand dollar question here, James, talk about returning to this moment years after it had been such a controversy. Because in my memory, it was kind of the first huge controversy attached to Game of Thrones, or at least it's the one that I remember that, you know, for weeks afterwards, it was still kind of being discussed, even among people who kind of loved the show as being something that was very disturbing. Yeah, uh, this is the the chapter that I was, you know, most apprehensive about, and it was the one that I sought the most feedback on during the writing process. Um, I thought it was really important to do a whole chapter on that scene. You know, it's, it's the most controversial moment in the show. It's probably one of the most uh, debated moments in the show. 
uh, it also intersects with uh, the book in terms of what George R. R. Martin did, uh, you know, and and doing something something different. And, and it's tricky to do in an otherwise upbeat, you know, oral history. How do you sort of approach in, in you know a topic like sexual assault? How do you do that in the context of 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 this book and and this tone and not be dismissive of it and but also not you know sidetrack the book into becoming you know something else other than what it is, so you know one thing that I thought was important is is there's pr probably more outside quotes from 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 critics of that scene than there is anywhere else in in the book because I wanted some you know outsider voices in there kind of weighing in. And, you know, and, and we talked to uh, the showrunners and the director of the scene and, and the cast and, and George and try to get, you know, basically if, you know, for people to have issues with that scene being in there, you know, I don't think there's probably anything in the book that, that would that would change their their mind about it. But I do think you'll walk away from it understanding why they did it and what their intentions were, whether they were successful or not. Well, and, and I think that, um, you know, we may discuss this a little bit more in our fourth episode. For me, um, it's an example of something where, like, when I think about my reaction to it, you know, I am a great admirer of bold storytelling. I'm a great admirer of storytelling that is just kind of messed up for the sake of being messed up. Like, like you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm someone who can kind of admire both incredibly cerebral instincts towards having something awful happen to a character. Um, and, you know, if a if an artist just feels as if part of the reality of what they're going for, part of the craziness of, of, of what they're going for, requires something truly disturbing, you know, I'm, I'm interested in seeing that also. One thing that's interesting about this scene is that, um, you know, in speaking to George R. R. Martin, he makes it very clear that his version of Littlefinger would not do anything attached to what happens with the wedding of, uh, of Sansa. And that got me thinking a little bit about the fact that more than anything else, I just didn't really believe the setup for Sansa's wedding night. Um, you know, where we were at in the greater strategy of Westeros at that point, it didn't really read to me. This is honestly kind of the beginning of me feeling like the show didn't really know what Littlefinger's master plan actually was. So I think that's part of it. Um, at, at the same time, you know, one of the things I like about the oral history setup is unlike so much else in pop culture coverage, it is literally kind of allowing for a multiplicity of voices to speak about something. And I do think that this chapter, you know, you have people like Natalie Dormer, um, who's always incredibly eloquent when she talks about the show, whether it's her role yes, on it or, or, you know, the, the larger meaning of the show, talking about her perspective on Game of Thrones as a feminist series. Um, you also have Maisie Williams, uh, and I do want to get this quote right, just literally saying, I think everybody's allowed to be upset about what they're upset about, which I think mm -hmm. is, pretty, uh, is, is pretty savvy. Um, but, you know, there's also this larger aspect of this scene that gets to... Um, this idea of Game of Thrones as a fantasy that was going to be realistic and disturbing in a way that fantasy had not been. And I feel like in the early seasons of the show, that was a big part of its appeal in a way that, you know, without maybe vocalizing it, you might have said yeah. like, oh, like the fact that it's disturbing is what makes it good. Like that's what makes it different from or, or, or you know, better than some things that are trying to be like Lord of the Rings. And of course, you know, there were things about it that were not disturbing that were good. And I, I wonder if this is just a moment where in making the show and kind of pushing that envelope, if it was a matter of that pushing of envelope leading the charge a little bit more than like where the story should go, where, where the characters were going. So this was all stuff that was kind of swirling around in my mind as I was kind of grappling with this scene. And I, I think that, you know, your chapter kind of does a good job of extending that, that, that grappling with it. Yeah, I, I, th I think just like in the way that the Red Wedding has all these reasons why it was so intentionally horrific, that that you know Sansa's wedding night scene uh, has a long list of reasons why it was unintentionally such a controversy. Yeah, I mean from the fact that we. I think one component is the fact that we saw Sophie Turner grow up on screen and, you know, and you know, part of our minds, you know, we still, you know, you know, think of her as, as, as the child we saw, 
you know, in, in the first season, you know, and I think part of it is that it's, it's a, it's a clear departure from the book. So there wasn't that runaway laid, uh, uh, in advance. Um, one of the HBO executives, uh, Michael Lombardo, I thought made a really good point. And he said, you know, that the audience that the show had in the first kind of few seasons, which were more, fantasy fans and, you know, fans of, 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 of Martin and fans of this particular show in this particular world, the show got such to be such a big, popular, broad series and got this gained this much more broader audience, uh, of, of, you know, of basically just, uh, well done drama fans. And so, and that, you know, the sensibility of, of those fans might not be the same as, uh, as the sensibility of the fans that they kind of, kind of started with, who were, who were kind of used to, to, to some of the shocks and horrors that Martin would regularly roll out. So, you know, and, uh, and, and yes, of, of, of course there, there's, there's also the little finger aspect too. And, and the way it was executed, I also understand, you know, the showrunners, uh, stance of, you know, we have this storyline in the books you know, it's, it's a very powerful, disturbing storyline. Are we going to give that to a minor character that you don't even know? Or are we, are we going to give it to one of our actresses who's great and who wants something, you know, you know, dramatic and, and, uh, to, to, to do. And so, you know, it's, it's like, I, I think everybody's reasons, you know, make sense, you know, but it, you know, you, you can also walk away with it still, you know, totally, disagreeing that they yeah, should have done it's, it. Yeah, it's, it's tough too, you know. Um, uh, I do think that that instinct to say, let's give one of our performers rich, tragic material to play, you know, there's that instinct aligned with what was happening at the time, which was a larger sense of, is this show just like, you know, is the show about a world where women are mistreated or is it actually kind of mistreating its female characters? This was right around the time of Cersei's, you know, walk as well, right? Because that mm-hmm. happened, I, I want to say, yeah. a few episodes later. Um, and, you know, I, I, as someone who has major reservations about the later seasons of the show, I, I, I share some of those concerns about it. Mixed together with reading this, I really kind of realized that in a lot of ways, that season may just kind of stand out as it was perhaps accidentally transformative in that the popularity of Thrones brought so much of these conversations to the absolute forefront of pop culture conversation and of, you know, how people who create television create television. Um, you mentioned you mentioned elsewhere in the book the interesting fact that when the show started, there was really no such thing as the intimacy coordinator, and now all HBO mm-hmm. shows require that. And so, you know, again thinking about the kind of ancillary effects of Game of Thrones is always really interesting. One final thing to think about when we think about um, the the horror of Sansa's wedding night is that Ramsay Bolton was just such a nutcase in a way that ultimately turned me off of the show's depiction of him because this is a show where up till then, you know, to me, when I think about George R. R. Martin's storytelling, I think about the book version of Jamie Lannister, and I think about someone who just seems like a totally awful human being who, in kind of a millisecond, suddenly becomes one of the most interesting and, if not likable, and certainly empathetic uh, characters. That was never going to be an issue with Ramsay Bolton. He was just bad through and through, and I, I always felt like that was just a lack of imagination on the part of the storytellers. That said... Um, when we talk about season five and some of its maybe failures, you also have to talk about the maybe successes of season six when you kind of had this climax for a lot of these different threads. Um, Most famously, Battle of the Bastards. You know, if you're going to defend Ramsay Bolton for any reason, his depiction of, uh, no one's going to defend him. If you're going to defend his depiction on the show as this totally horrific absolute nasty de- demonic character mm-hmm. i think you defended on the grounds of what well, we really had to build him up as like someone who seemed like he could be the final boss for john snow for a lot of other right. people in that corner of the show uh, i'm talking about battle of the bastards um this is something you've covered in depth before james and still to me just as a production feat is something that is pretty extraordinary um you know 
again, you've explored before what went into making it and why, even in the moment, it just didn't really feel like anything else that had ever happened on television before. Um, but uh, can you kind of just like set up for us a little bit again, just how unusual Battle of the Bastards was, even in the context of some of the earlier huge battle sequences that they'd done at that point? Yeah, it, it was their first attempt at doing a proper field battle where you have, you know, two armies on either side and 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 to stage that over nearly a month in in a muddy field is, uh, you know, for, for a TV show is 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 a pretty massive thing to do. And, you know, you're talking about season six. I, I, I personally uh, love season six. I, I, it's I, your favorite, I, I, you I, said, right? I, I have I, it. I, you know, I maybe four, maybe six. Most people would say four. Uh, but you know, to me, season six, they're just firing on all cylinders. It's the last season that, that is, that is, and feels like an entire full season. And I, th- I think the last two episodes, I pretty universally considered two of the best episodes of the show. And, you know, uh, you know, obviously there's, there's so many critic criticisms of, of Dan and David. And, you know, I think one of the best sort of rebukes to that is, is, is to point at those final two episodes, which are, you know, entirely beyond the books and, and, uh, and, and really show the show at, at, at the height of some of its dramatic powers. You know, so, you know, it's, uh, yeah, and, and I, and I, I thought Battle of Bastards was, was fantastic. I was fortunate enough to be on, on, on set for some of it. I was actually on set for the day and we, you know, get into this in the book it, when, you know, Miguel Sapochnik, the director, uh, supremely talented director, he he was faced with having to improvise uh, a, a major change in the storyline because he, he basically ran out of time to do what he was going to what was originally planned. And I don't think what was originally planned has actually ever been. I'm not sure if that's ever actually been out there before, but uh, it's it's detailed in the book. I mean, basically, Jon Snow was going to run up. Uh, the body pile and there was going to be this 360 shot where that pans all around him showing the battle raging all around him um, which is an extremely difficult shot to do because you keep on having to to redress the field to kind of connect all those shots so it, it's it's a lot of long shots with a lot of fighting and a lot of people in the background that you have to coordinate it and um, then an enemy fighter one of the Bolton fighters was going to lock on to him and start charging up at him to kill him and then suddenly the giant one one was going to burst through through the body pile and 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 save him so you know it's a massive scene and they just ran out of time and then the director uh had to figure out well what can we do instead that will take less time will be less expensive that we can fit in in into the schedule yet would be just as dramatic and even and it turns out they got something even more dramatic and that was the the moment with when when Jon Snow was was piled on by in the stampede by his own men and you thought he was going to suffocate and then he sort of he has this rebirth moment you know, you know climbing his way back out you know and it's it's so interesting hearing what went into the making of that scene um because i i remember watching battle of the bastards you know as someone who my entire adult life has been Hollywood figuring out like more and more cool ways to shoot a battle scene, you know, as, as someone who kind of was coming of age as, as a teenager around the kind of gladiator into Lord of the Rings era, you sort of feel like, okay, I, I think I've seen this as many ways as, as it can be done. And the funny thing is that the description in your book of the original idea, I was reading it and I was kind of like, well, yeah, like that's kind of the Peter Jackson version of this scene, you know, this this sort of sweeping kind of angle where you're seeing everything in the battle, this idea of kind of building up to this cool effect. And, you know, I mean, that could have been cool. I don't think it would have been as cool as what they came up with. Ultimately, it's kind of, you know, an example of the the greatness of being able to think on your feet and, and kind of improvise because that, that climb through, the, that is just such a palpable, visceral horrifying and in its way, you know, very kind of impressionistic portrayal of the battle. Um, it's the kind of thing where, you know, 
in your book, you often kind of discuss how there were things they still couldn't do. You, you were not able to show like 20,000 people on a, on a battlefield or anything. So how do you kind of make it feel that way? Um, you know, that, that to me is always kind of the example of like, you focus in on the most seemingly specific, almost blinkered depiction of the battle. And if you kind of dramatize it effectively, then that'll be pretty special. Um, you know, uh, besides kind of that sequence, James, uh, even kind of having been on set, I, I'd be kind of intrigued to know, um, either in talking to the cast and crew or kind of going back and, and revisiting the Battle of the Bastards again, uh, any kind of new insights that you came across or a, anything that you think kind of still sets this battle across from the stuff that came before it or the stuff that came after it on the show. You know, it, 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 what you were talking about was just reminding me that I, I didn't put this in the book. I just remember being on the set and um, standing there in the rubber boots that are normally worn by uh, Adi and Gillen because apparently... Littlefinger and I have the same, you know, you know, nine and a half inch feet. And, uh, and I remember, you know, Miguel, like, like refused to talk to me across three days of being on set, which is just maddening when you're a reporter. And it's like the director won't talk to you and you don't understand why. And, and, and because at the time I didn't know that they were going completely off book and doing that entire substitution. It was only later. I was like, Oh, no wonder he didn't want to talk to me at the time. He was freaking out because yeah. of course you would be because, you know, going off book, you know, off script is something that game of Thrones normally never does because it's so hyper meticulously planned. And so to, to, for this production with you, with, with these hundreds and thousands of people to just suddenly be improvising is, is such a big deal that, uh, you know, I, I, I was really, uh, impressed by, by that moment. And, um, and, and also, you know, I love, I like the little detail that, uh, that the writer, uh, Dave Hill talked about in terms of when they get back to the castle and they have that moment where Jon Snow picks up the shield and advances on Ramsey as Ramsey's firing arrows at him. But then they have to decide, wait, what shield should he pick up because they they have they have shields they have Bolton shields you know they 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 have they have they have House Gower shields they have, they have House Mason shields you know they have all these different different shields for different houses and all of them have different shapes and different designs and different grips and so they have to try one after another of you know you know you know Kit Harrington kind of picking up different shields trying to find which one would be the most natural and also try and figure out in their heads well why is that shield there in the first place so we can explain it to ourselves it's just like one of those just tiny little details he picks up a shield and and yet the amount of attention that goes into figuring out how to make that work um that you know it, as a viewer you don't even think about James it's funny uh, like while I was reading your book I kept on kind of trying to, every now and then I, I try to figure out who would I have wanted to be on the Game of Thrones cast as far as like getting to see the coolest stuff while not having to do the most athletic <laughs> things. Because, you know, you, you know, you have the spectrum. You have like um, Kit Harington spent a lot of the show in very cold climates and also had to consistently do, as you kind of track, more and more difficult, more and more, you know, you have to be an actor, but also an NFL athlete style things on screen. Very much I don't so. want to do that. Um, yeah. I, I, but then, you know, it's just it's funny to think of like, who then was the person who got to see all that stuff happen, but not necessarily need, like, need to like kill yourself for like night shoots for like 11 weeks or anything. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Kit Har Harrington, I mean, his, I mean, what he, I, I remember being on Battle of set and, and just seeing how much he would put into a shot and then there's this pause and they and they reset and they go again. It was like watching, I mean, it was like being in, in, in like a CrossFit class and, and, and you have like high intensity interval training and watching somebody go as hard as they can for 90 seconds and then they have a break and then they go as hard as they can again, except you're doing it all day long for a month and it's it's really difficult to to convey how physically demanding that is yeah he you know in terms of the cast he by far had the the toughest job but at the same time you know you also get to look like the awesome iconic hero swinging around a sword so i mean that's that's yeah uh, i don't i don't that's, i don't need that's, that i don't need that i want to be i would i would love it so you know i want to be like just yeah. just like i'd be cool being like davos who's just like there but like rarely engaging yeah. with yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the, i mean i mean every cast member will tell you the most enviable 
jobs would be ones that were in Croatia and Spain. And that is absolutely true because, you know, the Northern Ireland uh, uh, weather in the winter months that they would tend to shoot was pretty rough, but uh, Croatia and Spain was, were, were very nice. And, yeah. uh, and uh, so, yeah, yeah. So, so you'd probably want to be somebody like uh, Natalie Dormer basically yeah. and, and, and have, have like nice dresses and being gardens and being Croatia and Spain and, and uh, yeah. I, I, I like, uh, again, just, just the idea of like, give me a lot of nice scenes of like, you know, King's Landing vistas, you know, yeah. talking about things and letting other people do the violent stuff. Um, you know, it's funny just thinking of Natalie Dormer, um, who's another great voice in your book, uh, her exit as Marjorie Terrell, you dig deep into that and to the larger exits of the end of season six. If the accused is not here, she'll be tried regardless. We cannot escape the justice of the gods. Forget about the bloody gods and listen to what I'm telling you. Cersei understands the consequences of her absence and she is absent anyway, which means she does not intend to suffer those consequences. And you know, James, I, I am kind of with you. Season six ends with these two great episodes that I've always oddly kind of interpreted as uh, the showrunners almost like angry in a fun way statement about like what they wanted the show to be. You just have like this collective tearing off of all of these characters who'd become important in seasons five and six that maybe they just didn't like very much. You know, people like the High Sparrow, people like Ramsey Bolton. These people did all just disappear right away. It, it's such an interesting kind of act of a show kind of resetting itself um, for the grand finale. Uh, a grand finale, James, that we'll be talking about in our own somewhat grand miniseries finale uh, in our in our fourth episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One bit about the uh, about Marjorie's exit that I I was happy to get was that she originally had a line of dialogue that that was cut. That you know she she had a final line of dialogue to the High Septon. Uh, she said, uh, "I think it's uh, you fool. She beat you." you know, referring to Cersei. And so, and, and, uh, and they cut that. And, and, it's, and I, th I think it's, it's a smart cut because you already got that in what led up to it. You already got that in her performance. You didn't need, you know, the on the nose, you know, you know, you know expression of that. And, yeah. uh, but, 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 but that was an interesting little tidbit that came yeah, out. Yeah. She was definitely very much communicating that. I, I, for me, there's a part of me that's kind of like once Marjorie leaves, there's a tone in the show that leaves with her that I always kind of missed. Um, you know, thinking about what the showrunners did with the material, I always thought that Marjorie Terrell's um, moving to the forefront of the show in a way that I, I didn't really feel so much in the books. I mean, she's an interesting character, but what Natalie Dormer did with her and, and how they kind of recontextualized her, I, I always associated that with being something really key to those middle years of the show. Yeah, yeah. well, they definitely built out the, the character from the books, and, and I always really liked her character, and I always thought she in some ways got, got, got the worst deal, or at least the most unfair deal in, in that, you know, she... Had, you know, was part of this, uh, you know, you know, very powerful family. You know, she had uh, her 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 mastermind grandmother on on her side. She had multiple times where where where, where she was you know supposed to become queen. You know, she uh, you know she she had uh, all the smarts. You know, she was crafty. Uh, but, but she, you know, she was also like a good person, but not naively. So, you know, to me, she had all the elements of winning the game of Thrones, except one. And that was, is that she was extremely unlucky. She was just incredibly unlucky and, and yet, you know, didn't really ever really actually make a misstep, you know? So, um, uh, I, I really like what the showrunners did with, uh, with her arc actually. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it's so funny to think about her as someone who, you know, potentially has this great situation going with, uh, maybe, maybe it'll be King Renly and her, and it's, you know, kind of a casual menage. Well, not really a menage, just Renly secretly, 
sleeping with her brother. That seems like fun. That doesn't work out. You'd think being betrothed to Joffrey is bad, but it seemed like she might kind of, if not tame him, then at least make him less crazy. That mm-hmm. doesn't work out. Being betrothed to Tommen, who's like seven, also not great, but at least there's a certain <laughs> power dynamic there. Um, but it is just what an example of someone who seemed to consistently make even the best of bad situations, ultimately running into the worst situation. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the very last thing I wrote for the book that I was just like, I was done with the book. I had done all these revisions on it. I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. And I was just lying there and I'm just like, God damn it. I have to put the cat in, you know, I, I, I was just like, I have to go back and add Sir Pounce in. I've got all this reporting on it. It's such an overplayed thing. It's, you know, it's, it's so meaningless yet. There's something about have you know, you know, it's something about getting the cat in there that I, that I just found that I liked. Hello, aren't you a proper fellow? That's a pounce. <laughs> Very handsome. So, you know, for, for, the, for, the, for those who actually re- read the book... It's, I was not going to bring it, this it, up, it's, by the way, James. This is all you. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's the most awkward segue ever because, you know, the whole chapter is about Tyrion and, and his season four journey. And there's this moment where, where I do this sort of segue from... From the from the dungeons of the black cells to let's go up in the tower where where Tommen and Marjorie are hanging out and then let's go back down to the black you know you know so I, I basically just try to kind of you know take a little elevator ride up the red keep you know to get to this scene uh, with no justification and then go back down just because I you know I, I wanted to get the the anecdote it did read fine I, I'm now disappointed that you didn't try to go for some kind of uh, you know sex in the city transition pun like uh, you know while all of Tyrion's dreams were getting mowed down there was some meowing down happening up on uh, <laughs> you, you you don't do that it's, it's justified but I will say James I mean the serpents tangent serves a larger purpose when you're kind of conjuring up what the experience was of watching Game of Thrones at that time. That's one thing that I really appreciate about how you approach the greater context of the show in your book. It's not just a making of, it's also like, what's it like to make this runaway train while people are seeing it and and while how they're seeing it is kind of ultimately, you know, impacting where, where the show goes. Because the Surpounds thing is one of the go-to examples of how, I, I don't want to be judgy and say insane, but let's say like how extreme a certain kind of TV fandom was getting while Game of Thrones was on, at least partially because of how people were absorbing Game of Thrones. Because there's just a past era where that's like a little nudge to the people who know what it means and know who, you know, what Surpounds is. Um, but just took, it took on such a life of its own that seemed so completely separate from what anyone making the show cared about. And, you know, the, right. the, the, right. the postscript to that, that they kind of killed him off screen kind of speaks to that. Um, right. But it just, there I mean, were Sir Pounce t-shirts. Right, 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 yeah, it just, I mean, it gets to me, you know, that is the Beatlemania side of Game of Thrones. You know, this is, this, right. this, this, this is not the first thing to be hugely popular um, to have that kind of effect where even ancillary things become very popular. But just that, that is another thing that, as someone who does love television, often baffles me about contemporary TV fandom is like these things that don't seem like anybody involved necessarily even thought about them now become bigger talking points than certain huge, huge things that they, that they were talking about. It, it gets, a, it gets a, the, the, the craziness of making and experiencing the show at that time in, in its run. And yet I, I, I get it on a level because it's, it's Game of Thrones, which is this huge thing and people take it very seriously. And suddenly there is a cat and internet loves cats. That's I true. love cats. I, I, I look at cat videos on Instagram like every day. So, you know, <laughs> it's, so, so, so it's like, I get it. Uh, so I, I, I get it, but yeah, it just took off in this huge way, but also the scene was interesting from, uh, for, from the perspective of, of trying to film it. I, I love Brian Cogman's, uh, anecdote about how he scripted it as, and he also, you know, just like me with the book, you know, was very much like added it in at the last minute. He's like, I'm getting Sir Pounce and, and you know, you know, because Sir Pounce is, is also in, in the books, you know, I'm, I'm getting Sir Pounce in, in the story. And of course, 
in the books, there's three cats because in, in, in uh, you, you know, everything in George R. R. Martin's books is, is more of them than there, are, than there are in the show. And um, but he wrote it as this kind of dainty, uh, cute little kitten. And on the day of, you know, for whatever reason, you know, you know, he, I think as he put it, you know, this giant ass cat shows up that's like all surly and refusing to do anything and squirming and just being a total pain in the ass. So, you know, it, it, you know, it, you know, I'm. I defend it. it. You know, it it was it was a fun a- anecdote either way. So now you make me sound like I'm anti-cat. Like, yo, this no, is this no, is not nice. I'm 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 a cat person. I'm a cat person. I I I fully support it. It's just it's it's funny to me to see and remember how this was very much the era when suddenly things like that, you know. This happens a lot in science fiction fantasy in general that, you know, background things come to the forefront. Just the the, the quickness with which that stuff would come to the forefront was always right. pretty interesting. <laughs> We've, we, we started off, we, we dug into controversies, and now it's a catroversy. That's, that's what this episode oh. was all about. That wraps it up for this week on EW's Game of Thrones Weekly. We do have one more episode coming up uh, where we'll dig into the later final stages of Game of Thrones. Thanks so much for listening. Give us a rating. Give us a review. We like to hear from you. You can tweet at us. He's at James Hibbard. I'm at Darren Franich. Be sure you subscribe to EW's Game of Thrones Weekly so you don't miss an episode. Next week's going to be the end of this miniseries, but you know there's more Westeros stuff coming. Go check out EW.com regularly for more coverage of Game of Thrones and the larger world around it. Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, Game of Thrones, and the official untold story of the epic series is out now from Penguin Random House. Cannot recommend it enough. Uh, Available wherever you get your books. We're going to finish up this week with a clip from the audiobook narrated by Fred Sanders. In the season premiere, Daenerys returned home to Westeros and climbed the ancient stone steps to take the throne of her ancestors at Dragonstone. There she met a delegation from Winterfell led by Jon Snow. As the king in the north attempted to convince the invading dragon queen to focus on the impending threat from the army of the dead. Finally, fire and ice had come together, and there was a tremendous amount of pressure to get their long-awaited meeting just right, particularly since the characters were destined to become lovers by the end of the season. Amelia Clark, Daenerys Targaryen Kit and I are very close, so acting opposite him in the beginning was very difficult because we just giggled our way through it. Our entire friendship had been not acting together. Both of us were going, Ah, what are you doing on my set? Kit Harrington, Jon Snow. We were both kind of freaking out. With a movie, you meet the other actor for the first time and you develop that chemistry over that time. But if you've known somebody for seven years and shared this incredible journey in your own lives together, and watch their character on screen for seven years, it's a unique experience to be in, and you know the world is watching. David Benioff That scene wasn't so much about instant chemistry. It's about two monarchs coming together and the conflict between them. So it's fun that there wasn't chemistry. He's annoying, and she's annoying, and somehow we've got to try and make peace. Amelia Clark It felt like the Battle of the Stairs.